The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday. Life Podcast. My name is Jason Spies, the North Dakota Nomad, the Shale Play Prophet, coming to you from the Hatch Coaching Studios. Our entitled intern provolone is man in the production elements of this podcast. We've got coming up a little bit later on in our Bakken barbecue phone lines, James Coleman. He's an associate professor at Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law. He's going to give us an update on the Texas Railroad Commission that happened yesterday. Actually, when I, we recorded the interview yesterday with James Coleman, and it was right during the middle of the day. So it was like white, hot information. So hot, it's beyond red, it's beyond yellow, it's beyond orange, it's white hot. Right in the center. That's what we got. James Coleman, white hot information coming up a little bit later on. Should mention, too, James Coleman is a contributor for Fox Business as well. Also, Bruce Bullock, he's the director of the McGuire Energy Institute at SMU, that's Southern Methodist University, Cox School of Business. So we're going to get a legal perspective. We're going to get a business perspective coming to you from the Texas Railroad Commission here on today's program or program, depending on which part of the country you're in. Also, our daily radio update on the podcast. You see here at The Crude Life, we do daily radio programs and weekly radio programs. So we have decided and made the executive decision that that three-and-a-half-minute daily radio update is going to be put at the tail end of the podcast. And today, you're going to want to stick around and listen to it because it's Thomas Funderburk. Small business owner, Lone Star Geoservices, Funderburk explains how the highly touted economic injury, disaster loans, and loan advance is not exactly what the political leaders are disclosing it to be. In fact, it's more of a bait and switch, to be honest. Thomas Funderburk coming up a little bit later on in the program, Lone Star Geoservices going to join us on our Bakken barbecue phone line and it's the daily radio update on the podcast folks we got some great headlines today texas oil and gas regulators aren't ready to cut production yet we're going to actually have a couple guests on talking about that today lynn helms north dakota's oil and gas industry has shut in at least 260,000 barrels of oil production we have that headline available as well in fact we're going to try to get helms on tomorrow's program but if you go to thecrudelife.com, who knows, it might be up today. That's the thing. We've got a lot of content that is constantly being updated at thecrudelife.com if you'd like to check us out there. And then I love this headline, Provolone. Thank you very much for picking this headline. And we're not going to get into headlines today. I'm just reading through them. But, but this headline is fantastic. Only government order could spoil Allegiant Stadium's completion date, exec says. That's the... Uh, Las Vegas football team, the NFL team. That's what the executives are saying. I, I don't even need to read the story. I know what it is, that only the government order can spoil it. So there actually is construction going on right now down in Las Vegas and in a lot of different places. So that is continuing on, and that that is correct. Only government order could spoil the completion date. So, all right, we're going to move on here. The sponsor of the day, Titan Solutions, 
Thank you, Titan Solutions. In November of 2013, Heath Holloway recognized a serious void in the oil field that he could fulfill. With the help of a qualified team of individuals, he began a long journey of servicing oil field companies in the DJ Basin. Service to oil field companies is a necessity that Titan Solutions had the opportunity to take advantage of. Currently, Titan Solutions offers safety, containment, surface rental equipment, and custom trailer solutions, plus a little bit more. Go to their website, titansolutions.org. That's titansolutions.org. Or you can certainly click on the Crude Life show page here, the podcast show page, and we've got the links there as well. We're going to continue on. Congratulations to Swan Energy defeating Target Hospitality in the March Madness Tournament, the Crude Life 2020 March Madness Tournament. We've got the video. We've got the bracket available at thecrudelife.com. Looks like Johnny Green, the Earth champion, has his eco watch up as well. Looks like there's some migratory bird Treaty Act reform that will clarify some confusion. I imagine that is directed towards wind energy. Johnny Green is not a fan of wind energy. And so we support his cause very much so here at The Crude Life. But check it out, folks, if you have a chance. All right, I'm going to get cruising along here. We have got a busy, busy show. I'd like to go to James Coleman now. Of course, I mentioned yesterday we recorded this interview right in the middle of the day, so it's white hot information here. And then we're going to be joined by Bruce Bullock in just a moment or two after our interview with James Coleman. I'm giving him a text heads up. We're going to be ready in a minute or two. Bruce Bullock, the director of McGuire Energy Institute at SMU Cox School of Business, coming up in just about a bit after our interview, which we're going to get into right now with James Coleman, the associate professor at the Southern Methodist University Deadman School of Law, gives us an update, comments on the Texas Railroad Commission and their unprecedented meeting. I'm James Coleman, and I'm an associate professor at SMU Deadman School of Law in Dallas, Texas. Appreciate you joining the program here today. Uh, There's a lot going on, especially what happened over the weekend and the week before when we're talking about OPEC and OPEC Plus and the new... OPEC plus plus and then we had this meeting happen in Texas on Tuesday which is today when we're doing this interview and lo and behold I'm getting my my social media is blowing up because this meeting this this huge long day-long meeting I don't know if it's going to spill into another day or not it's going on in fact it's so hot that James Coleman his story on Fox Business is white hot right now because it's right in the center of what's cooking and so we thought we'd bring James Coleman on from SMU, but also a contributor for Fox Business. And we're going to have that link at our website as well with the story. Uh, James Coleman, how are you doing today? Doing well. Hanging in there. Well, I appreciate you joining the program here for this white, hot information. I love it when something's hot off the press, but this is so hot it's in the middle because, as uh, you, you mentioned before we started the interview, these meetings are still going on in Texas, aren't they? Well, that's right. They started at 9.30 this morning, and after there's 55 uh, very prominent members of the oil and gas industry uh, that are in, that are planning, are scheduled to speak, and I looked down during the third speaker, and we'd already gone through two hours. So that meeting is still going on, and who knows how long it will continue. So let's talk about your Fox Business article here real quick about you know, what's going on with the COVID-19? We got the global uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic and the shutdown happening. 
But there, there were some other things that happened as well in terms of uh, the Saudi Arabia, Russia, OPEC. But even going into last year, there was, you know, Whiting Petroleum, who's kind of the poster child for a lot of things right now. You know, they laid off people last July, and then we had some November, some debt uh, happen as well. But so the, the industry's had, you know, some some issues and things like that. But today, it sounds like there's kind of a, I don't know, almost like a game-changing announcement to quote the article. I just, I almost said game-changer, and I pulled back, but then I looked and I saw it's in your article, and I thought, <laughs> nope, I'm going to quote it. So uh, there was kind of a game-changing announcement today that at least it sounds like it's coming out of Texas or uh, the news combining, if you will. Talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, what's happened is that we're emerging from the biggest oil and gas boom that the world has ever seen. It is, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than any oil and gas boom that's ever happened in history before. Uh, and so it's brought the U.S. to an unprecedented level of oil and gas production. The problem is that just as we've been producing more oil and gas, we have uh, at the same time had this destruction and demand for oil and gas that's a result of this global pandemic which means that nobody can travel nobody can work everybody's gotta uh you know do their best to social distance or stay home and that means that we're consuming less oil and gas and that's led to a catastrophic drop in oil prices in fact oil prices have dropped so far that in some places briefly they've been at negative prices you had to pay somebody to take that oil away so that's a very uh that's a very dramatic problem for for producers in North Dakota and in Texas. And what's happening, um, so the way the world has responded is a couple things. One is that uh, some of the major oil producers in Russia and Saudi Arabia and the other members of OPEC have agreed to cut their production back about 20% to deal with this fall in demand. There's a continuing question about whether the U.S. will join them and cut back production. It undoubtedly will cut its production as uh, to a certain extent, as a result of market forces. That is, people will stop drilling, they will shut in some wells, and there will be a fall in production. But the question is whether the states should go further in actually mandating some cuts to production, as they have done in Saudi Arabia, Russia. And also, actually, I should note, they've done that in Alberta, just across the border in Canada. So you might wonder, well, why would any state cut its own oil production? That seems like an odd thing to do. But, you know, this is a request to cut production that was brought by producers in Texas. So there are um, these ongoing hearings in Texas about whether they should cut production. Nothing's been decided yet. There's a three commissioners asking questions and taking information. But they're hearing from oil and gas companies on both sides of the issues, some of them saying, you need to order cuts to production so that we can all have a little bit higher prices. And other ones saying, no, let the market work it out. Yes, some of us are going to go bankrupt. Yes, we'll buy some other, you know, we'll have to, some of those bankrupt companies will have to be bought out, but we should just let, um, this is going to be hard, but we should let the market take care of it. And that's the huge debate that's happening in Texas right now. It's very controversial within the oil industry and between those, uh, between those oil and gas companies. I was going to ask if this was an unpopular topic down in Texas right now, and you just said it was controversial. So that answers that question. Um, what is the vibe right now in terms of 
some of the things that are happening. It, it, there's there's production cuts. I mean, before we got on to this interview, I read Continental is, is doing some cuts and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I'm reading that, you know, business is going to bounce back sooner than ever, if you will. Um, what 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 is the end result supposed to be with this Texas meeting, if you will? Because I was kind of reading some of the things going into it, and I know we're only halfway through on the day, and so and, and we'll get back to um, some of your research here in a second, but I just kind of wanted to see more about the vibe and just some of the things that are happening with what's kind of, um, I guess, the controversy, obviously, you have two sides. And the one side doesn't want production cuts, and the other side does. And I'm trying to figure out the what the end goal is supposed to be at the end of the day in Texas. I'm not sure if I even know how to ask the question. Wow. No, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, because you might think, okay, so so let's 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 uh, you know start with what's puzzling, right? Everybody understands why an industry would say, "Don't cut my production." You know, normally no producer wants the state to come in and cut its production. And, you know, furthermore, most usually a producer prefers a free market, doesn't want to invite the government to step in and start regulating the level of the production. Right. So that that. So what we have to explain is why producers would like the government to step in and reduce production. Well, I, I guess I kind of got caught up for just a second because, like, you know, right away, people think of New York, Colorado, California. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and when we're talking about Texas. It, it you can't make that comparison because the average Texan that that doesn't compute at all like that one you I mean a, a reflex of a backhand is more common. sounds like socialism uh, right. totally totally and so yeah that's yeah. why I'm trying to I'm trying to ask the question like how is this possible because <laughs> at the same time I don't I don't think that is what the intention is do you know what I mean by that where it's, it's yeah yeah that, that's gonna that's... be the low-hanging fruit as far as well, the perception well... goes. Well, let me let me say a couple of things about that. One is that until for the, you know, in the days of dominance of the American oil industry, which was basically from the 1901 to about 1970, really for sure ends 1972. In that time period, Texas always controlled production. It always set limits for its producers. So the kind of regulatory scheme that made Texas the center of world oil markets was about controlling production. Yes, it was a free market. Everybody got to find their own land, drill their own wells, develop their own technology. But it was done within an overall scheme that said, we're not going to have too much production overall, because if we do, we're going to waste a lot of resources that are going to be worth more money in the future. And so that kind of careful planning helped the free market develop in a way that made the U.S., the world's premier energy superpower. Okay, now, for the first time in half a century, the U.S. is again the world's premier energy superpower. And the question is, should we rediscover some of those tools that we used before that uh, helped us manage that oil and gas wealth? And so I think, you know, although it does sound, you know what, I would say that Texans, you know, Texans love the free market, but you know what Texans love even better than the free market? something that works. Texans are not ideologues, right? They don't say, hey, you know, this is, we need to, um, you know, do have one approach no matter, no matter what happens. They're looking for something that works for consumers, for the economy, uh, for producers, etc. And so the argument from, um, 
the uh, people in this hearing supporting cuts is that this is something that will work to help ensure that our free market oil and gas system isn't destroyed but continues to bring Texans prosperity. And so let me explain the theory of how that works. I'll try to explain some of the downsides as well um, when I do that. Uh, so, so the theory is that uh, is a couple things. One is if you have market power, that means you're so dominant within a specific market that you can, when you cut back production, prices rise enough that you actually make more money. Now, Texas doesn't have market power within the global oil economy because to let's first approximation then i'll complicate this but to a first approximation the world is one oil market there's a hundred million barrels a day if texas which produces five or six million barrels a day cuts back its production yeah that raises prices in the world a little bit but because texas is selling less it's going to make less money on the other hand if you get all of OPEC together, which is 30% of production, and all of Russia, which is 12% of production, and all of the U.S., which is 19% of production. That's 61% of the market. If they all cut back production at the same time, what's going to happen is oil prices will rise so much that they are going to all, everybody will make more money, all the oil and gas companies. So part of what's happening here is that on Sunday, Saudi Arabia, OPEC, and Russia announced that they were cutting back production 20%. So part of what the drama here is, is Texas and the U.S. going to respond with its own cutbacks? And that's a little bit different because here it's not controlled by the federal government. It's controlled by the states. And that's kind of what Saudi Arabia and Russia are waiting to see. So one question is, does Texas want to show, hey, we're cooperating too. We're doing our best to restrain. Maybe you should cut back production even more to help us all out, right? There's a cooperation. Uh, there's a cooperation game that's happening. In a more immediate way, Texas might want to cut back production in certain fields where there's a lot of flaring. So you know, even um, so, even though it's typically you know global, we have an increasingly global natural gas market. We have a global oil market. There can be big differentials between the price of oil in Midland and the price of oil in the Gulf Coast. Sometimes it was, you know, $20 a barrel in past years, right? There can be big differences, obviously, in gas prices. So, you know, we have low gas prices at the Henry Hub, kind of what we consider natural gas or national natural gas prices in Louisiana, but they are way lower in West Texas. In fact, at a lot of wells, it's zero or even negative pricing, even at the Waha Hub. So even if you invested all the money in building gathering lines to take that natural gas to their local market, the Waha Hub, you have to pay somebody to take your gas away. So there's so what happens when you have those differentials is that the regulator has market power within those markets. So if tomorrow the Texas regulatory, uh, the Texas Railroad Commission stepped in and said, "Hey, everybody, cut back natural gas production 10% in West Texas," all of those oil and gas companies, first of all, flaring would drop very low almost overnight. People would do, do it as much as they needed to for safety, but all of the economic-driven flaring would go away. Second, what would happen is all of a sudden producers would be being paid money for their natural gas. So natural gas would go from a net negative on their balance sheet to a net positive. And so that's what market power means, that sometimes the regulator can step in and reduce production to increase profits for the industry. A lot of what we're talking about here I can't, it, it just, it seems like it has a lot of themes of things that used to be illegal in the 70s and 80s called price fixing and price manipulation. 
Yeah. And, and you got to tell me I'm wrong here because, again, I don't know much about that. It's, it just seems like these are a lot of the themes about when I read about the concrete companies and the, and the you know, the big road companies that would get together at cafes and price fix and the, the, steel, the silver industry and that kind of thing. This just kind of yeah. seems like a lot of the, the topics that were there and they're just openly doing it. So uh, help me out, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, that is a, that's a great question. Let me, so let me tell you the answer. Um, the answer is that the government can do price, price fixing. The government <laughs> can, can, there's no, there's no antitrust liability if the government made you do it. And so, yeah, I think that's a lot of big puzzle. People say, they say, well, why, if these oil and gas companies want to produce less, why don't they just produce less? And the answer is it doesn't help them if just one company does it. They all have to do it at the same time. And so then people say, well, why don't they just agree to all do it? Well, if they all agreed to cut back production, they would all go to jail and they would all be liable for billions of dollars because that's what our antitrust laws do. Is they say you can't agree to reduce production. That's what we're worried about with price fixing. But if the government orders you to reduce production, you absolutely can and there's no absolutely zero liability. So that's a, that's the really interesting um, – so that's why they're going to the government and asking, uh, and asking for these reductions. Now, before we have these antitrust laws, people like Standard Oil, right? Rockefeller did exactly that. But now you can't do that as a private company. It has to be done through the government. Now, you might wonder, well, why does the government want higher oil and gas prices? Well, you know, absolutely you don't want high, higher oil and gas prices if you're Governor Cuomo in New York or if you are – you know, in Chicago, but if you are in a major oil and gas producer like North Dakota or Texas, yeah, absolutely, you want higher oil and gas prices. Now, they're probably not going to do price fixing to an extent that will get them in a lot of trouble with the federal government. In fact, usually this works best if the federal government talks to the states, talks to the Industrial Commission in North Dakota, talks to the Railroad Commission in Texas, talks to the Corporation Commission in Oklahoma and says, hey, everybody, here's how much we want you to all cut back. Um, but it, so it usually works best if it's done with the federal government and the federal government's not going to want, you know, it's kind of extreme price fixing that might hurt consumers. I kind of was thinking to myself and actually what I wrote down in my notes was the enemy of my, fr my enemy is my friend and friend of me because I think the, the railroad commission actually oversees the fact that they want to ensure there is no price fixing. So I, that's why I think is really funny is that the railroad commission, their job is to make sure there is no price fixing and now they're being used for it. So you just well, you can't right. make it up. It's, it's true. <laughs> Although, but just keep in mind the reason the railroad commission, I think if you look at economic history is the most important regulator in the history of the world because of how it managed Texas oil and gas markets in that period around world war two from 1934 until really the 1960s and a little bit until 1972. And so in that period, Texas Railroad Commission was OPEC, and it determined whether the world, you know, if it raised oil prices, cut production to raise oil prices, it could send the whole world into an economic tailspin. And if it opened up the taps a little bit, that meant there was an economic boom. And so the Railroad Commission, you know, although it does have, a, it does, it's supposed to prevent the industry from coming together by itself and fixing prices, it has always its central role has been to raise oil and gas prices to ensure that Texans, Texan workers, Texan landowners, Texan industry, Texan investors got good money for their oil and gas. And let's not forget that it is the Railroad Commission, which at the end of the day, um, their job is to keep the trains moving on time. Right. And, yeah, and, that's and whether right. that's the actual 
trains or whether it's the oil and gas or the economy, um, you know, it's it's really it's it's symbolic, in my opinion, of really the, the the big the big industries that are the engine of the economy. That's how I kind of look at it symbolically um, with the railroad commission, because it is kind of funny when you think about the railroad commission overseeing oil and gas. Well, no, it is, it's, it's hilarious, I think, to me, that, you know, history's most important economic regulator is called the Railroad Commission. It's important to me, it's, it's hilarious to me that the biggest oil and gas, or the most important oil and gas regulator in the world is called the Railroad Commission. Uh, basically, what happened is that, you know, oil and gas, especially, or sorry, particularly oil, during the Rockefeller era, was moved on uh, pipelines or railroads. And so, and so basically, the, when, you know, the, um, the legislature said, Oh well, you regulate uh, railroads. You should regulate pipelines as well. And then once they started regulating pipelines, they said, "Well, if you're regulating pipelines, if we need to regulate overall production, seems like you should be in charge of it as well." But it's funny that yeah, the Railroad Commission spends all of its time on oil and gas, and it's you know universally recognized as probably the world's you know, premier experts on oil and gas production, and yet they have a, a name that makes you think that they regulate trains. Well, that's again keep the trains on time. Whether it's coming through a pipe or whether it's coming on a right. rail, you got to keep those economies going. That's what makes the the engine go. Uh, I did want to ask you uh, about the flaring angle because I'm really glad that you brought that up because one of the things that I would imagine that at least is talked about I don't know publicly, but at least maybe on the side meetings here at this Texas Railroad Commission meeting is that if there is a decrease in production, two things are going to happen on the flaring side of things. Number one is you're going to reduce emissions, and that's going to, uh, I would imagine, appease a lot of environmentalists. Uh, Secondly, it's going to give the innovators a chance to catch up with how to make that hydrocarbon more profitable. And I don't know if that second one can happen, but at least it gives a little bit of an opportunity for them to catch up with that because time is their biggest biggest uh, um, enemy, I guess, right now in terms of that. But is, is that brought up at all, that environmental angle? You brought up the flaring, so I just wanted to chime in with, uh, have you followed the environmental side of that or the innovative side of that? Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, there is no question. So this deal that was announced on Sunday between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and it's announced by the U.S., the U.S. basically brokered this deal. There has never been a any step taken by the United States that would have such a dramatic effect on lowering global greenhouse gas emissions, right? This at a single, I mean, this makes something like the clean power plan, which was done in the last years of the Obama administration. That's a rounding error compared to this. If you take knock 20% off global fossil fuel production for, you know, even for a few months, much less if you had continuing cooperation to keep prices at least not way too low, that has a bunch of benefits. One is it just at the at the basic level, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions from the sector by 20%. Secondly, it um, it encourages other forms of alternative technology because right now a Tesla or solar power or wind power look like terrible investments because why would you invest in a Tesla if you can get gasoline for under a dollar a gallon? Why would you build solar or wind power when natural gas is at rock bottom prices, right? So having um, so doing something to have you know more reasonable pricing does encourage alternative uh, alternative technologies as well as well as benefiting the uh, the oil and gas industry. So I think that's important. 
Um, so I think that's that's a huge, you know, potential environmental benefit. And the other benefit, of course, is yes, it could reduce flaring. So, um, I mean, if you if you just remember, it's only about you know four or five percent of Texas natural gas is flared. So if you said, hey, Texas producers, you got to cut back your natural gas production by twenty percent, or even ten percent, or even six percent, immediately that flaring would go away unless it was needed for uh, economic reasons because basically you know the way that would be done is you would ask each company to cut back but if you would allow them to trade their allowances so if one company could cut back more it would so who would be the first to cut back their natural gas production would be the people who are getting no money for it we're just flaring right and so all of that flaring would go away immediately and i think that would have two benefits one is you know right now that flaring has no environmental you know that natural gas has no benefit it's just emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere but if we can slow it down a little bit, that natural gas can have huge environmental benefits because, you know, not only does it burn cleaner than coal or oil from the perspective of power, and that's a hugely important thing for, uh, for carbon to, and also from the perspective of carbon, right? It's about 50% of the carbon emissions or 60% of the carbon emissions of coal. Coal is the world's number one source of power. So if we could replace some coal with natural gas, we get lower carbon emissions. But even more dramatically, the world's number one problem in terms of environmental problems isn't climate change. You know, any environmental economist would tell you by far the biggest problem is air pollution. Air pollution has a daily effect on people's lives, even in the United States, but also especially in places like uh, China, India, Pakistan, etc. And so if we can replace coal with natural gas, natural gas is incredibly clean burning. So although natural gas is like kind of on the middle on a climate scale between between uh, coal and something like nuclear power, if you look at its particulate matter emissions or sulfur dioxide, all the things that are harmful to breathe, basically natural gas takes those to zero. So it is, a, it is something that could do a, a massive amount to clean up air around the world if we can take the time to get it to the markets that need it rather than just burning it off, flaring it at uh, fields, uh, you know, in the Bakken and the Permian. I've actually seen studies where natural gas is cleaner than wind energy. And the reason is, is because of the, uh, the amount of construction and manufacturing and just everything that goes into the whole project behind it. Because at the end of the day, what does natural gas have really kind of one hydrocarbon that's kind of dirty? Um, I think I, I, the numbers are really small, but the, nat the natural gas is, I cannot believe how much my mind has changed on natural gas being a lot greener than I would have ever thought. Um, oh, yeah. It's incredible. And I, I guess my, my future that I see is, you know, a combination of a lot of all of the above, and natural mm -hmm. gas is going to be needed for all of them. <laughs> That's how yeah. I, I look at it, to be honest, because wind energy has got a long ways to go. I'm I'm on record by saying that I believe farmers from 150 years ago were more efficient with wind energy than we are today because, you know, 100 years ago, they powered the pole barn and got water. That's pretty good for, you know, a couple hundred buck investment back then. Yeah. Now, nowadays, it takes quite a bit, and they're finding out more and more that they're not as uh, economically efficient as possible, or as they thought they were, and plus they need subsidies. Solar, I, I'm I'm a lot more positive on. Um, I think their biggest issue is the battery is is trying to yeah. get to that terawatt of storage, and that raises a whole new issue of cobalt mining and lithium oh, yeah. mining and that whole deal. 
So then I go back to, boy, natural gas is pretty good right now. So I'm looking at, you know, the pipes they're trying to build to Mexico. I'm looking at the innovation. And I I just see where, you know, as weird as it sounds to do production cuts and some of these other things, if you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, it almost seems like this is going to be better off a year or two from now. And it's going to get us to our goal a lot faster. I, I don't know if I'm making sense, Mr. Coleman, or not. But uh, do you understand yeah. what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, that is my belief as well. And and so actually, I mean, to be clear, um, I think that putting, you know, my view of these Texas railroad cuts is that it would be, it's probably too early to cut back on oil production, right? Because, you know, if you cut, I mean, the theory of oil production is, oh, well, Texas can, you know, form an alliance with, Saudi Arabia and Russia, and so they're all going to cut. Well, you know, Texas, I mean, they're trying to do, and one of their commissioners is, you know, been, is going to go to the OPEC meeting in June. But Texas is not really ready to make any kind of formal alliance with Saudi Arabia or Russia. That is just not politically, um, that's not politically feasible. And so, um, and so I think it's too early to do that. But, um, and also keep in mind, you know, the thing about oil is right now it's being sold for too little money. And that's a big problem for the industry. But it's nothing like the problem of just burning off natural gas, just wasting it, right? And so uh, what I would suggest instead is the Texas Railroad Commission should impose limits on that gas production just in the fields that don't have enough pipelines to get them to market. So it's being flared. So just in the Permian. And I would actually recommend something similar in North Dakota, which is cut you know, cut back production just to slow it a little bit so that we don't have so much flaring and we preserve that natural gas for when it's more valuable in the future. Because one thing, we don't know where oil prices are going. But one thing we can be pretty sure of is natural gas prices, if it's currently getting $0 or negative dollars, it will be more worth more in the future. And so if we can hold it back a little bit, that can have big economic and environmental benefits for us. And the way I would handle the, you know, the issue that, I mean, I understand OPEC is looking to us now. Saudi Arabia is looking to us. Russia is saying, hey, we're, we cut. Why don't you cut a little bit? What I would do is, is this. If you're cutting gas production in the Permian or in the Bakken, that will also cut oil production a little bit. Now, that's probably uh, that's probably a negative because when you cut that oil production a little bit, which are you know that means that you know that means you're getting less money from oil because you're still getting positive money from oil, not negative like from natural gas, at least in most places. But what I would do is two things. One is you could limit that impact on oil production by allowing, again, those gas cuts to trade with each other. And so the people that could cut their gas without cutting their oil production would do so. And so maybe, you know, if you cut gas 10%, you'd only really, that would only amount to a 5% cut in oil. So it would limit the impact on cash flow. Secondly, you would, um, for that remainder of 5% that you cut oil, that oil was cut back necessarily by your gas cuts, I would go to OPEC, go to Saudi Arabia, go to Russia with that and say, hey, look, we acted in good faith. We, If you look at the cuts that we made, they did cut our oil production a little bit as well because we're acting, you know, could you please cut a little bit more to help support uh, energy markets at that time? So I think that would allow the um, the Railroad Commission to kind of meet its mix of, you know, uh, economic, environmental and geopolitical goals. It's crazy that all of this is being, uh, you know, decided on a on a web hearing that anybody can can attend. 
uh, in Texas right now, but that's the reality of our current world. Oh, I forgot about that. The whole thing's being done over a, um, a webinar, basically. Yeah, that's right. That's oh, right. Yeah, and, you know, wow. anybody can sign in. <laughs> right, exactly. I saw where, you know, they're trying to get even that kind of band now because of Zoom bombs and whatever else yeah. they got going on. But Oh, well, I, I shouldn't say everybody. I mean, I think it's. I think it may be secured. It's not Zoom. It's, it's something else. So. No, it, so no, there are... I, I know it's not Zoom. In fact, I've, <laughs> I've seen some people upset on social media that they're not doing that, and I'm thinking, okay, guys, now we're getting nitpicky here. It's getting... We're, we, our our problems if we're trying to nitpick that okay we we got to find some <laughs> new stress here I guess but uh, Fox Business if you want to check out his recent article James Coleman professor at Southern Methodist Universities is it Dead Man Dead Man yeah Dead Man Dead Man okay School of Law it's D E D M A N Dead Man School of Law focused on energy and environmental law outstanding in fact that's what this program is focused on as you know we live in the crude life but we took it we, we really saw that the energy industry was <laughs> and this is you get a kick out of this you're from the midwest so you probably grew up with harry the dirty dog that coal and oil and gas were dirty so dirty you know that harry the dirty dog that's how he got so dirty and um going down the coal chutes and all that other stuff but I honestly, I, I have come to terms with the fact that the energy industry is one of the leaders on the planet, if not the leader, on the environmental movement. They're investing more money in the technology that is going to allow us to live in the next chapter of our lives. Honestly, that's where I came from. It's, um, I, I've been very impressed at the environmental movement that the energy industry has really gotten behind and... Um, I say that because I feel like it's almost like a balance because they get so dog dogged on the other side. And I always say they don't need my support. You know, they've got they're like a 5000 pound gorilla and I'm an ant. So, I mean, I don't know what I can do for them. But at the same time, I do know when people are getting picked on. I do know that. Right. I've seen that right. my whole life. And they have been getting picked on unfairly. And one of the reasons that I think so is. They've done a tremendous job investing in innovation. I think they really have. Um, and you mentioned earlier really how powerful the oil and gas industry is in Texas alone. I've seen reports from some very smart people that this whole shale boom that's currently going on, there's another 20, 30 years left in it, and 70% of it's still going to come out of the Permian Basin. So uh -huh. it, Texas is going to continue to be the powerhouse that they are. But um, anyway, uh, uh just wanted to give you an opportunity for a plug. So is there a way people can access your stuff? Should they follow you on Fox, Fox News, uh, Fox Business, or do you have a blog or anything like that? Yeah, probably you can, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Energy Law Prof, so Energy Law P-R-O-F, or you can go to my blog, which is EnergyLawProf.com. We will have those on our website as well. Awesome. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. To listen to the full-length interview, visit thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. 
the model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery. Welcome back to the Crude Life Podcast. My name is Jason Spies, the North Dakota nomad, the shale play prophet, coming to you from the Hatch Coaching Studios. Provolone is our entitled intern, man in the production elements of the podcast. Just got done listening to James Coleman, associate professor at Southern Methodist University, Dedman School of Law, and appreciate his time today. Moving along to our next interview, I'm seeing the phone line flickering now. So outstanding, Bruce Bullock, director of the McGuire Energy Institute at Southern Methodist University, Cox School of Business, is going to join us in just a second here on our Bakken Barbecue phone lines. But I did want to take one mention to remind you folks, still coming up a little bit later on, Thomas Funderburg from Lone Star Geoservices explains why the highly touted economic injury disaster loan and loan advance is not exactly what the political leaders are disclosing it to be. And it's a little bit more of a bait and switch type of a presentation at this point. Thomas Funderburk still to come, but right now, Provolone, we ready? Thumbs up. Awesome. Bruce Bullock, Director, McGuire Energy Institute at SMU Cox School of Business. Let's get a mic level check. Provolone, please. Bruce Bullock, I'm Director of the McGuire Energy Institute at the SMU Cox School of Business. Thank you for joining the program here today. Coming off of the Railroad uh, Commission meeting, the Texas Railroad Commission meeting down in well, Texas, I guess, uh, talking about really some unprecedented things when we're looking at the grand scheme of just the way, I guess, recent memory has been where there's talks about the state directing some oil cuts, some production cuts kind of directed by, I guess, the president. And I'm just, you know, this is all really new. In fact, uh, I interviewed a colleague of yours earlier And uh, since it was during the middle of the day, we said, boy, this information is so hot off the press. It's white hot. It's like right in the middle hot. So uh, Bruce Bullock, thank you for joining us today. Now, it is at the end of business day after 5 p.m. And are the meetings now done? Uh, They are. uh, I I clicked off about an hour ago. (laughs) Okay, Uh, so they might be going in overtime. Yeah, you know, they're limiting testimony to about three minutes a person plus questions. Uh, and so uh, but they they indicated that they probably wouldn't have a decision till the end of the week. OK, so it, it was looking like that's what I thought earlier when I kind of ch- looked in earlier. I saw that they were not going to have a decision by the end of the day that they were going to be just basically taking testimonies. And it looked like it was pretty, pretty controlled in terms of time, um, which is fine. I get that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this is really unprecedented times. And so on one hand, I am glad they're not rushing into anything. But on the other hand, um, it's, it's you know, we need a decision last week. And that's the way the oil and gas industry has always been, I guess. But what is your reaction just kind of, you know, processing pretty much, I don't know, from the from the sounds of it, you got most of the days meetings in if not all but an hour's worth but i mean you, you took in most of it it sounds like so what, what did you sound what, what did you take away uh, i took in most of the meeting today I, when i came into it i would have guessed maybe a 25 percent chance that the end that the uh, railroad commission would act uh there were a lot of people especially larger companies that were lined up against this um, but the longer the day went on, 
and the more the arguments in favor of this and the kind of questioning that went on by the commissioners um, seemed to pique their interest a little bit. So, you know, I, I would think uh, the odds now maybe more like 50-50 that, uh, you know, that they may take a hard look at this uh, by the end of the week. Uh, it, um, it, it, it seemed to make a lot um let me put it this way. There were a lot more compelling arguments at the end of the day than there were at the beginning. Well, I interviewed a colleague of yours, James Coleman, and really we were talking about a number of different things, but we could tell that there really was a silver lining through the whole thing that, listen, this, this is not all the information that we want to hear at this time, but we need to take a step back and realize this is this is the biggest oil boom probably in the history of the planet. Now, I get that there was a big one when it first started out, but $100 oil, this was a big decade for oil and gas, and this kind of took off. Now, it was a one-two supply punch, so it's really hard to, I guess, agree on anything because it's such extremes that have happened. And that's why I kept going back to really, when you look at the silver lining here, you're gonna have a great opportunity for the environmentalists to really stop going after oil and gas and understanding the value of oil and gas, whether it's from the healing and the helping of the coronavirus or it's the redu reduction of emissions that is happening just out of sheer you know, inactivity. Um, trust me, I'm sure that wasn't lost in the meetings, um, the, the, the reduction of flaring. The, the other thing that I wanted to point out was this is a really good opportunity and chance for a lot of the technology and innovation to get caught up. And so when things kind of do get back to that normal capacity or back to where it's at, it's going to be really much cleaner and much more environmentally friendly and maybe even even produce a few more jobs. So that's my silver lining. And I don't I, I wasn't a part of the meetings like you were today. Was that discussed either one of those two silver linings I just brought up? Absolutely, especially the one where uh, you know slowing down production a little bit, and a couple of years out where technology is is, is likely to be uh, better, and quite frankly, that um, that oil is likely to be more of more value to both the state uh, and the mineral holders uh, two Ooh. three years from now. Uh, than it is now, and so that was discussed uh, at at uh, at length. Uh, that uh, you know we can, yeah, we can we can sell it now, and prices you know go down to ten dollars a barrel, or you know we begin to take some action here, and you know, maybe we keep the bottom from falling out of the market. And two or three years from now, if we can get prices back up to fifty dollars a barrel. Uh, then um, the oil is worth a lot more to the state in terms of taxes, jobs, and so forth uh, than it would be by selling it right now. Were people having a difficult time understanding the cutbacks to get increases? Well, their, their biggest argument was that the, the capital markets and their own actions uh, were tending to cut it back anyway um but the 
those in favor um, of the Railroad Commission uh, doing this uh, were saying, well, that may well be true, but you know, it may be December or January before we get there. Whereas the, regula- uh, the regulatory body, the, the Railroad Commission, has the ability to be able to take this production off the market the 1st of May. Uh, so this is an opportunity uh, to make a real meaningful impact or certainly a signal uh, to the markets uh, in fairly short order. And, you know, they also kind of do the comparison to OPEC in the sense that you know, OPEC is still reliant upon voluntary uh, uh, compliance by all of their members and it's going to take them a while to dial this back and, and so forth whereas if the railroad commission and let's say the other state corporation commissions uh, look at this and say yeah that's a good idea and Oklahoma's already decided to at least look at this issue uh, then we might be able to have a more meaningful impact quickly and so uh, uh, the timing issue is, is something that I think the proponents were able to uh, really impress upon the commission. I'd like to ask you a couple questions being from outside of Texas. I, I, I don't understand Texas because I'm not from Texas. I, um, I like Texas. I'd like to understand Texas more. But when I was in Texas a few years ago, um, you know, it's, it is different. When you think you, you understand it, something happens and then you don't. And so I looked at my buddy and he said, let me tell you this, Jason. He goes, we, we had a family down the street moved in back when that Kennedy guy was in office and they're still the newcomers here. And so I went, okay, I got gotcha. you. I understand Texas. Gotcha. So with that being said, um, Texas is really does have quite a bit of bravado and, um, when I start hearing things like the state is going to cut back production, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is California, comes to Colorado, comes to New York. Was that brought up in the meetings at all today that, you know, we're not going to allow the state to come in and, and regulate? Or does the Railroad Commission have the respect and the authority to where people are like, okay, we're, we're going to listen to you? Or is there that bravado? You are absolutely spot on with that comment. And that was the biggest objection was uh, a philosophical one of a governmental body um, uh, injecting themselves into a free market. No question about it. And uh, the, the, the folks pointed out, you know, that, look, up until about 1970, that's how the state ran the business. And, oh, by the way, that's how the oil industry was built. Uh, um, but, um, since that time in the 50 years that, uh, have ensued, uh, it, it's been, it has not been that way in Texas, but, uh, no question that that, that sentiment still holds. And it's one of those things where there are probably some producers around there. And I suspect my email box will be full in the morning when I say this, that are opposed philosophically to this kind of thing. But if the Railroad Commission went ahead and did it, um, they probably wouldn't be that opposed in practice. 
Well, and my, my follow-up question is this, is, and I'm really happy you answered the way you did because that's the way my mind was. And, I'm, and, and there should be that discussion, actually. There should be because, there, you know, Texas is a lot like North Dakota where I'm from. And we're, we're very much into individual property rights and we're very much into free market, et cetera. The one thing, though, that we forget, you know, North Dakota, they've got a state uh, um, bank. They've got a state mill. And a lot of that was to protect the interests of the citizens back in the day when it was first built. Whether that's the case today is a different argument. Um, the reason I brought up the Texas Railroad Commission is because, you know, I was talking to your colleague earlier, you know, James Coleman about this, that for me, the Texas Railroad Commission always had the symbolism that the trains run on time and whether it's a train or a pipeline or an oil tanker, that type of thing, the railroad commission in my mind illustrated the, the, the flow of energy and the flow of the market and you know, the railroad and oil and gas really were that, I mean, back in the railroad first started, they were the market oil and gas has been the marketplace. In fact, it's been the only job creator the last 10 years. Anyway, we, we, James uh, Coleman and I, we got into, and he brought this up, where Texas really is its own little OPEC. So that's what I mean by the Texas powerhouse. Was that brought up at all that, you know, Texas really is a powerhouse at the end of the day, and they are kind of their own little OPEC? It, it sure was brought up. Huh. It, it, no kidding. It, it, was it was brought up. I'm not sure it was brought up in those terms, but it was brought up that certainly – Number one, uh, you know, the Texas Railroad Commission is probably the premier oil and gas regulatory commission in the world, um, and that other states looked at it to take a lead, um, and they train a lot of regulatory officials around the world, uh, so that uh, you know, other other jurisdictions would clearly be looking for them to uh, uh, to act on this, uh, and then. Um, and then number two, that uh, uh, you know this this is not something. As I said, this is not something new. Uh, this kind of expertise was uh, you know, uh, how the industry was built in Texas, uh, and how um, you know, how the Railroad Commission got its reputation and built its expertise. Now, it was a pretty good. Uh, point brought up, if you will, by Commissioner Craddock, she brought up the point, look, if we do decide to go down this road, one of the challenges is we're not sure how to do it. <laughs> um, there's nobody around anymore that was on staff by then or was a commissioner back then. Uh, we're going to need some help from industry uh, in, term, in, in determining exactly how to allocate these cuts, you know, do you let producers trade these cuts, if you will, uh, and so forth, which I thought was a good point. Uh, but it also, I think, signaled an openness on their part uh, that if they go down this direction, look, um, help us out on this. That is really interesting you said that because as you said it, you know, opened up, I was writing down, um, here, I'll, I'll read it word for word here. Commissioner Craddock displayed honesty, which showed weakness and strength. And I, that's how I look at it. Like, I, I, I think that's a very 
good point to bring it up that, you know, it, it was a strength, but at the same time, it also showed a weakness. And um, I, I, I just got to side with, I'm glad that she brought up the honest portion rather than tried to lie and say they're on top of it. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I'll give you an opportunity to actually just kind of opine a little bit, you know, what you thought about crack, Commissioner Craddock's comments in response to mine, and also what did you think of just the day in general? No, I, I thought she was spot on with her comments. She comes, uh, she's actually the, the, the daughter uh, of a uh, former state legislator who ran an OFL service company, so she's grown up in this business. And, uh, and so, you know, she, she knows what she's talking about. Uh, and I think she also understands there's, there's people out there that can, can certainly help the, the railroad commission. Uh, and there is an equity argument here. Um, the, the, the smaller, there are some smaller producers that feel like, uh, they would be unfairly burdened by this. And so they want to appear sensitive to this. And therefore, whatever they decide to do, um, they want input from all corners. And so she, she's proven herself to be, I think, a, a, a fair and open commissioner in that regard. And, you know, I, I, I certainly am, am very glad that uh, she asked the kind of question that she did. And, and I think it was displayed, displayed elsewhere. Also, I, I, I just in my uh, uh, overall impression of the day. I thought the questions were were very good and on point. I think the commission had looked at its legal responsibility fairly closely uh, in terms of what it has the power to do and what it doesn't have the power to do. Because the last thing it wants to do is to is to act and then have this thing tied up in court for the next three or four months. Uh, so they, that I think they've got a pretty good idea of what they can and can't do. And so they asked a lot of questions that uh, uh, were in in that kind of realm. And so uh, they built a pretty good record, if you will. Uh, in terms of really acting either way. Uh, but I, as I said, I, I, I think the needle moved a little more uh, towards the reduction than, uh, than I would have thought it would. Whether or not they politically can kind of throw their uh, lot in with OPEC, I, I, I don't know. But you know, you you talked to my colleague earlier, James Coleman, and I think he's got some really really good points on how you you know how you can do that. There are enough benefits to it uh, such that it's really in our self interest, um, not simply OPEC's. Well, here's what I can tell you: is the reason I wrote down strengths and weaknesses is, is is not because I know anybody involved. So, I mean, that's the nice thing about being from out of state is that you can kind of take a look in without a political, you know, um, um, monocle or even bifocals, if you will. This is just pretty simple. That right now we're in a time where true leadership needs to rise to the top, and by Commissioner Craddock even bringing up the question, that's real leadership. Because she's saying, I don't, I don't know the answer, and I'm going to rely on the other leaders that are supposed to lead us through this. 
And in my opinion, the reason that was even brought up to begin with is to kind of gut check everybody here. It's like, okay, guys, I know we play politics from time to time and we, we have our special interests, but now's not the time. We actually got to guide through this together without special interests and that sort of thing. I don't know if that was the message that was sent, but that's kind of how I interpret those types of things when somebody mentions a comment that we're all thinking yet nobody has the guts to say it. And then when that person has the guts to say it, good for them, you know, and it, it makes us think. And so I just wanted to mention that because I do think that is why people are mentioning the obvious comments that we are very taken back that people mention, you know, like, cause what you're saying, I'm thinking, you know, it's good. She mentioned that, but actually it's kind of common sense. You know what I mean? So it's, um, anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. I think one other thing that came up was, was, was look, uh, you know, for the past several years, um, even though we saw some recovery from the 2014 downturn, it still has been almost, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, if you will, uh, to this industry. You know, the capital flow hasn't come into it the way we wished. Um, the the environmental community's been been hard on it, uh, and so forth. Um, so we've kind of had that going on for the past two or three years. You know, the percentage of the S and P five hundred <clears throat> over the past. Uh, 25 30 years has gone from uh like 25 percent down to two percent for the energy industry and uh, um we got to do something and so uh, uh somebody's gotta somebody's gotta take the lead on this you know COVID 19 um isn't another paper cut it's a two by four up the side of the head <laughs> And so maybe this is the thing that pushes us over the top uh, to take some meaningful action, if you will, to, uh, um, to, to, to get us headed in the right direction. Uh, kind of some final thoughts here wrapping up. What did you take away from today's uh, Texas Railroad Commission? What's the next step? What do you want to see done? Um, also, give, make, make sure you plug your school of business, too. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to be watching it pretty closely this week. Uh, a lot of discussion going on in both social media and in the um, uh, and I'm sure behind closed doors in Austin. Uh, you know, I, I'm at the Cox School of Business at SMU at the McGuire Energy Institute. And, uh, you know, we're getting quite a few inquiries and have been uh, communicating back and forth with some of the industry folks on this and uh you know if they do decide to go forward we'll we'll probably help put some recommendations forward in terms of um how this needs to work uh and so forth and i'm sure there'll be others as well but uh uh i'm i'm more hopeful at the end of today that some meaningful action will be taken uh than i was going into it to listen to the full-length interview visit the crudelife.com The Crude Life is sponsored in part by Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects. Groundbreaking. The Davis Refinery. 
That's going to do it for today's The Crude Life Podcast. I'd like to thank James Coleman, the Associate Professor at Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law, as well as Bruce Bullock, the Director of the McGuire Institute over at SMU Cox School of Business, the McGuire Energy Institute. Excuse me, I believe I left that word energy out of his title, but Bruce Bullock, Director of the McGuire Energy Institute at SMU Cox School of Business. Thank you for coming on today's program. Also, Thomas Funderburk coming up in just a moment or two. We're going to hand the baton off for our daily radio update right here on the podcast. Thomas Funderburk, Lone Star Geoservices, explains how the highly touted economic injury disaster loan and loan advance is not exactly what the political leaders are disclosing it to be, and it appears to be a little bit more of a bait and switch. Also, our headlines are available at the Crude Life's show page, and our sponsor of the day, Titan Solutions, Thank you, Titan Solutions. If you would like to know more about Titan Solutions, they've got safety services, containment services, surface rental equipment, custom trailer solutions. Check out their team. Check out their photos. They've got a gallery right at their website. You can see all the different things that they're involved in from safety to containment, surface rental equipment, custom trailer solutions. And my guess is they might even wash your car too. That's the kind of team they got over there at Titan Solutions. Check out titansolutions.org, titansolutions.org. Once again, congratulations to Swan Energy for defeating Target Hospitality in the March Madness Tournament, the finals. It was Swan Energy over Target Hospitality. Boy, I tell you, that final four was something else. A 13 seed canine pipe inspections. They did get knocked off by Swan Energy and Target Hospitality defeats Aries Building, a matchup of the temporary housing. It was a final four for the ages. Anyway, that bracket and all the results are available at thecrudelife.com. Johnny Green's Eco Watch is available at thecrudelife.com and the Planet Service announcement as well. Provolone, excellent job today, man in the production elements of this podcast. And we're going to hand off the baton to Thomas Funderburg, Lone Star Geoservices, on our daily radio update in just a moment. From the staff here at the Crude Life Podcast, my name is Jason Spees, asking you to always remember energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life with host Jason Spees. My name is Jason Spees, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Thomas Funderburg with Lone Star Geoservices. Well, um, I'm, a, I'm a geologist by trade. I started my business uh, really out of necessity just a, as a consulting geologist to do, uh, try to fill any need that any oil, oil and gas company, operator, third service party, whoever, you know, whatever service they would need for me to fill in geosteering. If they want me to go mud log, you know, I, I'm trying to fill in whatever whatever niche that I can. Thomas Funderburk with Lone Star Geoservices continues as he explains how the highly touted economic injury disaster loans and loan advance is not exactly what the political leaders are disclosing it to be. I, I heard all the news that was being plastered everywhere about all this um, recovery relief, you know, coming and and, uh, you know, that was kind of a bit of exciting news. You know, it was, it was definitely a lot of good news because, yeah, I have a lot of invoices that I'm waiting on to, to get paid from some of these uh, independent oil and gas companies. And um, so, yeah, I have a lot of money tied up right now. I'm not getting paid anything. Um, and so seeing this, this would have been like a really big boost and relief 
for at least a, a you know a couple months uh, would have given me that little bit of a buffer or a boost. Um, but then, really, it was it was it was your post, like I said, that maybe go investigate this. And lo and behold, I see this that that email sitting in my inbox from SBA um, saying that you know they're going to give a thousand dollars per employee um, that your company had prior to January thirty first of this year. I think it was. And that just kind of took the wind out of the sails. I'm like, really? It's just like a bait and switch kind of kind of feeling. As a small mom and pop business, do you expect that these private oil companies that owe you money are going to pay you, or even the government that's supposed to come in and offer some sort of loan protection or some sort of loan assistance? Do you expect anyone to actually look out for the little mom and pop business right now? Yeah, I, I'm really not holding my breath for them to pay, and that's been a reality that that I've been trying to accept, you know, in the back of my mind. I, mean, I have a family to provide for, three kids and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, it, it it worries the heck out of me. And ever since this has started, I've been I've been thinking of, you know, what am I going to do if, if things don't work out? To listen to the full-length interview with Thomas Funderburk with Lone Star Geoservices or to listen to other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. Come join the Crude Life's ever-growing army of energy enthusiasts as we surpass 300,000 social media followers on our multiple social media pages. Check out thecrudelife.com, click on the social media tab, and you'll see the Facebook, the YouTubes, even the Twitters. From the staff here at The Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies asking you to always remember energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life.
seems everywhere I go these days, someone is telling me about the success of Hatch Coaching. Listen to what professional speaker Mark J. Lindquist has to say. To see Eric Hatch grow his business and then start to share it with other people, I think is one of those great steps in life. You know, what do you do in society? You succeed at a thing and then you teach other people how you did it. And now to see Eric duplicating his genius across the country, I'm telling you. There's a world changer down the street, and his name is Eric Hatch. For more information, call 701-212-1572 or visit coachingwithhatch.com. That's coachingwithhatch.com. Historic, the first full conversion refinery to be built in the U.S. in over 40 years. Innovative, the cleanest, most technologically advanced downstream project ever. The model for future shale basin projects groundbreaking the davis refinery the crude life every monday through thursday with a week in review on friday
The Crude Life, every Monday through Thursday with a week in review on Friday.